You know, in this Advent season, I mentioned that we're going to be looking at the four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in the book of Matthew. And actually, there's five uh, there. We Last week, week we looked at, at Tamar. Um, we're going to look at um, a woman named Rahab today. And then we're going to look at a woman named Ruth. And then following that, she's not named, but, but she's mentioned Bathsheba. And then on our Christmas service, which is the day after Christmas, we'll be looking at Mary, the life of Mary, and trying to understand how all of these relate to Advent, to the coming of Christ, to the coming again of Christ. And so last week, we did a little bit of a history lesson starting at, where else? The beginning. That God created the world, that in this world, God placed uh, Adam and Eve in his image in a perfect garden called Eden, where he walked with them and lived with them, and they were in harmony, and they knew no shame. Isn't that an amazing idea? And they knew no sin. But then sin entered into the world through the disobedience of Adam and Eve, and God pronounced a curse. He pronounced a curse on Adam, he pronounced a curse on Eve, and he pronounced a curse on that uh, wily serpent who was there uh, really lying to Eve about what God had commanded and what would happen if she disobeyed. Uh, and, and we saw in that curse uh, of the serpent that God promised that there would be a seed who would come, a seed of the woman who would crush the head of the seed of the serpent, that one day there would be a Savior who would redeem the world, who would defeat our enemy, our, the liar, the accuser, in our life and that we would be free once again to follow God, to live with God, to walk with God in the cool of the day in a perfect garden. And we talked a little bit about how the end of the story in the book of Revelation that you see this inauguration of God's kingdom and it looks like a garden. There's a tree of life, there's a river, there's uh, you know in the garden of Eden it was filled with gold and the and the heavenly kingdom has streets of gold and everything that we see in the beginning is present in the end. And so today we're going to continue a bit of our history lesson as we look at what God did to bring about the promise of that seed of the woman. And so last week we talked about uh, Tamar who, was, who gave a son to uh, Judah and how that was a part of the continuation of God's promise for a seed of an offspring who would come and restore the world. And we know that that uh, she ended up becoming the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of David, and that David is the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of Jesus. And it was the promise of David's throne that continued and th that Jesus fulfilled. So today we're going to see a little bit about how that happened, a little more of the story. So if you know a bit of your Bible history, you know that the book of Genesis is all about the creating of this special family that there's Adam and Eve, and they have their sons, Cain and Abel. Uh, Cain kills Abel, but then there's another son named Seth, and then he has children, and then we get to Noah, and then we go from Noah, we get to Abraham. God calls Abraham to be in a special relationship with him, and he blesses him and makes a covenant with him that he will bless the world through him. And Abraham has his son Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons who become the heads of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in the end of Genesis, all of that tribes, all of those, that family ends up in Egypt. And of course, you know the story. In Egypt, they're put into captivity. And in captivity, they're there 
uh, under dominion, under uh, oppression, and God sees the plight of his people, and through Moses, he calls them out of captivity. And when Moses calls them out of captivity, remember they cross the Red Sea or the Sea of Reeds on dry land, and they enter the wilderness, and because of disobedience, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. At the end of those 40 years, we get to this wonderful part of the story in the book of Joshua, where the people begin to finally step into the promised land, the place that God had set apart for them so that they could be established as a people and that he could protect that offspring, protect that seed until the time of its, the promise's fulfillment. And in the book of Joshua, um, we see this great story, and you guys probably know about um, Jericho, right? The Battle of Jericho. You guys remember that from Sunday school? There's this city. It's a fortified city. It's the first fortified city, I believe, that the Israelites come to. And it's the, so it's the first city that has a big wall around it. And God tells them, look, here's how we're going to do this. I'm going to go before you. And they, they march around the city with the Ark of the Covenant. And the Ark of the Covenant is this special, it's just kind of like a special box that's also a seat, uh, like a throne. And inside, uh, they've got the, a copy of the Ten Commandments and Aaron's staff. It's this kind of crazy idea. But they walk around that city and they sing songs. But they walk around seven days. On the seventh day, they walk around seven times and the walls come crumbling down. And God gives them the city. But in the midst of this story, there's a story of a woman who becomes an ancestor of Jesus. And we're going to look at her life right now. So in Joshua chapter 2, I'm going to read. You can read along with me if you have your Bible. Uh, or you can just listen. Uh, it's great to just hear the word of God spoken. So it says in Joshua 2 that Joshua, Joshua, by the way, was the one who took over after Moses died. It says, Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. Someone must have seen these two men who were outsiders, who were, they didn't know, right, strangers go in to uh, Rahab's house. And it's possible that she may have actually run an inn. And so that would have been a natural place for them to go. But it says in verse 4, the woman, Rahab, had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, yes, the men came here, but I did not know where they had come from. And at dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. They may, you may catch up with them. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. This was the harvest time. And so the flax was up on the roof drying so that it would be ready to be processed for food. Uh, so she put them in, so the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us. 
It's just important to remember here and notice that whenever you see this word Lord with all capital letters in your Bible, that's just not the word Lord. Lord just means someone who's in charge, right? This is the personal name of God, and we, we render it as Lord, uh, so, and we, we put it in all caps so that you know this is the personal name of God. So she's saying, I know that essentially your God, your Lord, the Lord and God of Israel, has given you this land, and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. But when you came out of Egypt and what you did in Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Wow, is that not... An incredible theological statement by a prostitute living in Canaan, living in Jericho, in a city that has its own gods, that worships its own deities, and yet she can speak this clearly and plainly about not only the God of Israel, but the God in heaven above and the God on the earth below. And she goes on. She says, please swear to me by the Lord, your God, the personal name of your God, that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we'll treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. And she said to them, go to the hills, so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves there three days until they return, and then go on your way. Now the men said to her, this oath you made us swear will not be binding on us, unless when we enter the land you have tied the scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers, and all your family into your house. If any of them goes outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own hands, on their own heads. We will not be responsible. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, we will be released from the oath you've made us swear. Agreed, she replied. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away, and they departed, and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. When they left, they went into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. Then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills, forded the river, and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him everything that had happened to them. And they said to Joshua, The Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. Now there's a little bit of story that comes in between that and what we're going to look at next. And I encourage you to read that story about what God did with Israel before and then during the conquering of Jericho. But it's interesting to note here a few things. One is uh, the amount of fear that Rahab mentions that the people have. Their hearts have melted because of what they've heard that God has done. And I, and I just wonder, 
you know, I think, I think um, we, we see this kind of fear popping up in really important places throughout the Bible. Uh, and especially when we think about Advent, there's a lot of fear around what God is doing. You know, I, I'm, I think of there's a, kind of this common theme between what we see in Joshua here, in the book of Joshua, Jericho, and then what we know of the story of Christmas. Do you remember the, how these, um, these wise men who are able to read the signs of the times, they come to Jerusalem to find the king who's been born, and who do they go to? They go to King Herod, and they say, tell us, where is this child who was born who will be king of Israel? And uh, so they, they kind of like, well, let's, let's ask the experts. And they ask the experts, and they say that he'll be born in Bethlehem. And what does Herod do? What is his response to the coming of God's king and the coming of God's kingdom? Well, he slaughters every male child beneath, under the age of two because he doesn't want God's kingdom to come. He doesn't want God, God's rule and reign on earth because it will interfere with his rule and reign on earth. And we see the same thing here, is that the, the people of Jericho, obviously they're scared because if God shows up, what does that mean for them? And it's not just any God, and it's certainly not their God. It's the personal God of Israel. It's the Lord God, the God of heaven the God of earth, and, and they are under no um, uh, false belief that their God is more powerful than this God. It doesn't even occur, you know, there are places in the Bible where people will say, oh, the God of Israel is nothing, my God will defeat your God, right? We saw that in the book of Nehemiah, oh, your God's nothing, my God's going to take care of your God, no God has ever defeated our God. Well, there was no pretense about that in Jericho. They knew. But it's interesting that only one person out of all the people who knew that the God who was coming was greater than the God who was there, so to speak, of all the people that knew that the kingdom that was being inaugurated would be greater than the kingdom they were in, there was only one person there who then transferred her allegiance from the king she knew to the king who was coming. And I think that's worth noticing. You know, at Advent, we're also remembering that Jesus is coming again. And what do we call that? We call that the apocalypse. And if you don't, if you don't know, know what the word apocalypse is, what, what do you think of when you hear the word apocalypse? Battle, right? destruction, uh, really, really bad stuff, right? And not without reason. I mean, if we look in Revelation, I'm going to turn there real quick and just read something for you because <laughs> the parallels are so powerful. But in the book of Revelation, um, let's go to chapter 8. In, in the book of Revelation, there's this, this unveiling. By the way, apocalypse actually just means a revelation, a revealing of something. That's why we call the book Revelation in English, but it used to be called the Apocalypse of John. They mean the same thing. But even when we think of Revelation, we think of all this destruction and mayhem and death. 
but it just means something that was concealed is now exposed and in the open. And what is that thing that is being exposed and revealed in this book? It's the kingdom of God. It's the kingship of Jesus. And in chapter 8, uh, we see there's multiple... Um, it's almost like one of those Russian doll scenarios where there's these multiple uh, unveilings that happen. And within one unveiling, there's another series of unveilings. But we're going to focus here on um, there's seven seals and in the seven seals there's the in the seventh seal there's these seven trumpets Uh, we're not going to go into all that but it says in chapter eight of revelation uh, i'm going to start in verse six it says then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them and the first angel sounded his trumpet and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and it was hurled down on the earth and a third of the earth was burned up a third of the trees were burned up And all the green grass was burned up. A second angel sounded his trumpet. And something like a huge mountain all ablaze was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea turned to blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. And then the third angel sounded his trumpet. And a great star blazing like a torch fell from the sky. And a third of the rivers and on the springs of water, and the name of the star is Wormwood, and a third of the water is turned bitter, and many people died from the waters that had become bitter. And a fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark, and a third of the day was without light, and also a third of the night. Obviously, there's some kind of metaphorical language going on here. A third of the sun went dark, a third of the moon went dark. And as I watched, I heard an eagle that was flying in midair call out in a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the trumpet blast about to be sounded by the other three angels. Now, again, (laughs) there's a reason that when we say apocalypse, you think death, destruction, carnage, mayhem. Because this is pretty serious, crazy stuff. But why is it that the revelation of God's kingdom brings this? You know, a lot of people struggle with why God would ask the Israelites to kill every man, woman, child, and animal in the promised land before taking it over. And a lot of people may struggle with why this carnage is unleashed on the earth. By the way, it's not done. It's just partway through. You have to realize, we have to understand that when the kingdom of God arrives and the king who is God arrives, that which came before that has pledged allegiance to a different king, to a different God, to a different system uh, of the world, to a different ethics, to a different morality, those things don't have a place anymore. There's no room for those things when God's kingdom arrives. And so even in the book of Revelation right here, if we were to go on in in chapter 9, we get these these additional trumpets and additional uh, things that happen. Um, But I'm going to skip ahead a little bit to chapter 10. In verse 1 it says, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, and he was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. And he was holding a little scroll, which lay open in his hand. And he planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. 
And when he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke. Now, we don't get to know what they said because the angel tells John, you don't get to write that part. But John goes and he gets this scroll. He says, may I have this scroll? In verse 9, the angel uh, gave him the scroll and said to him, take it and eat it. I will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. And it tasted sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, it turned my stomach sour. And then I was told, your prophes- you must prophesy again about many nations, peoples, nations, languages, and kings. And it's a sign that what John is going to have to say, there's an aspect of it, it tastes good, but it hurts. Right? And then he was given a, a measuring rod, and he was told to measure the temple of God. And then all of this happens, and then finally the seventh trumpet is sounded, and that's where we're going to end in our little trip in Revelation. It says, the seventh angel, in verse 15 of chapter 11, the seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven, which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. Think about that. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Messiah. This is exactly what was happening on a small scale. This ragtag troop of wandering Middle Eastern family was taking over the promised land. All these kingdoms of the world were becoming the kingdom of the Messiah, the kingdom of God on earth. Verse 16, the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple, what was there? The Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. So in this end of time when the kingdom of God is taking over the kingdom of world of the world there again is the ark of the covenant just like it was with Joshua when they were taking over Jericho and it says that God's judgment is coming because the nations of the world were angry they were angry at God angry that he was breaking in that his kingdom was taking over their kingdom and so you see, Advent, we, we often, I didn't grow up with Advent. Anyone here, like, not really have heard of Advent until maybe we even started doing it here in church? Yeah, that's kind of how it was. I didn't hear about it until I went to an Episcopal church and I learned, oh, there's this thing called Advent. You know, I'd heard the word, that, but for me, Christmas season was just like, focus on this story of baby in a manger, and, and it's a great story, and it's a real story, and, and it's a powerful story. But there's something that's missed because Advent has this element of uh, not, just, not just joy, not just happiness, not just, oh, a sweet little baby, 
but it's a reminder that there is this almost traumatic and, and dangerous aspect to the coming of Jesus that we can forget about if we're not careful. And what I, wanna sh- what I want you to be seeing here is that what happened with Rahab and then what happened when Jesus was born and what will happen at the end of the time, it's happening right now that the kingdom of God is breaking in and there are, there are forces in this world that hate it. And it says right here, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. For those who love God, this is a joyful occasion. For those who hate God, this is a terrifying occasion. So the people of Jericho, they had fear, right? They had a fear. Their hearts were melting of the idea that God, the Lord God of Israel, was coming with his people, and he was coming to eradicate all that had come before. But Rahab had a different kind of fear. She had the kind of fear that we talk about when we say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. So she made this incredibly crafty, wise, shrewd choice to take her lot from everything that she had known, everyone she had known, every ruler, authority, power that she had ever experienced in her life, Take that lot and cast it with two exposed, probably scared spies, but ones who serve God. If we go back to the story, Joshua chapter 6, we see what happens. The, uh, The people of God, they do their little daily march. They shout and scream and they blow their trumpets. And just like in the book of Revelation, when those trumpets are sounded and they bring destruction, back in the conquest of Jericho, they blast their trumpets and the walls fall down. Every wall, I guess, except the wall that has one house with a scarlet cord hanging out the window. That's probably filled with as many relatives of this woman that will fit in the rooms. This prostitute, this Gentile heathen, this uh, idol worshiper woman that God is pleased to make the great, great, great grandmother of Jesus Christ. She has a different kind of fear. And so we read... In verse 22 of chapter 6 of Joshua. The Joshua, Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, Go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. And they brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. And then they burned the whole city and everything in it. 
And they put the silver and gold and articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. And she marries. And she has a son. Who we're going to hear a little bit more about next week. Boaz. Because next week, when we look at Ruth, that's in the time of the judges, which is right after the time of Joshua. And all these things link together. So Boaz, who's willing to marry a Gentile woman who was probably an idol worshiper and a pagan and a heathen, had a mom who was the same way. And just like Tamar last week that we looked at, who's a prostitute, this woman's a prostitute. Just like another woman we're going to look at, Bathsheba, who's an adulterer. Uh, God consistently is pulling in people that shouldn't be part of the story and putting a spotlight on them and saying, with these people I am well pleased. These people get a special note. And when Matthew writes his gospel and he mentions so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so, they're all men because they're always men. And yet the Holy Spirit wanted these women's names put in the list. And the book of Hebrews, which we heard about in our reading, where it says that faith is the evidence of things unseen. Uh, they mention Rahab, and specifically they connect her faith to her lying. And I mentioned last week, in the Word of God, in God's economy, Trusting Him is way more important than any rule that comes up. It is an act of faith to lie when you're trusting that the God of Israel is going to destroy your nation. To lie to your king and say, those men have gone because you're hiding them, because you know that the only way you're going to get through this, because you have so much faith in the power of God, the only way you're going to get through this is if you can switch sides and join the other team. And God says, yes, that's exactly what you're supposed to do. That in fact, treason is the only logical choice when you follow a kingdom of this world that is opposed to the kingdom of God. That in fact, the denial, even of your family, Jesus says, many will lose fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters on account of me. It's the only reasonable choice when the Messiah shows up when the king arrives and the kingdom begins to be inaugurated. That's why these wise men who meet Herod lie to Herod about when and where they're going. And they leave a different way because they don't want to have to face him again. Because they know that he's opposed to the things that they're excited about. They're opposed to what God is doing to inaugurate a kingdom. That's why in the book of Revelation, there's so much death and destruction because this world is fundamentally at odds with what God is doing. And as, as 
much as we will work and ought to work to promote the values of the kingdom of God and the kingdoms that are here today, none of the kingdoms today will stand when God returns. None of them. Not this country, not another country. They will all be cast aside. Because when the kingdom of God shows up, there's not room for anything else. Now, what does that mean for you and me today? Well, it means the same thing it meant for those spies and for Rahab. The same thing it meant for Joseph and Mary when death was coming down on their son. The same thing it means in the book of Revelation that we read when all this destruction is coming. It means this. Put your hope in Jesus and share that hope with everyone you can. Because this is not about, like, let's be clear, this is not about we as Christians hating the world. No. This is about we as Christians doing the same thing God in heaven does, which is to love the world. I had a conversation just recently. Why, why didn't God just restore everything when Jesus came the first time? And the only answer I have is the answer that the Bible gives us is that God is waiting because he desires that more people would put their faith in him and find salvation. That God, God is delaying all of this destruction. Uh, it's not like he's out there eager to like, throw firebolts down the earth. He's waiting because he longs for more and more and more people to be restored to him in relationship. To be forgiven of their sins through Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. To be freed from the shackles of sin and death. To, be, to, to have their, their shame and guilt removed so that they, including you and me, when the kingdom comes, we're not in the rubble, but we're among those who are saved. And Rahab is this amazing person because with very little information, she could see exactly what she needed to do. She didn't know if those spies would agree to her scheme. She didn't know if Joshua was the kind of person who would honor their commitment. She didn't even know if the Lord God of Israel was the kind of God who would receive a prostitute, heathen, Gentile, pagan, idol worshiper or not. But she knew if, this is, if anything good is going to come out of this, it's going to come from me going all in with the new king. And that's where our hope is. That's where our hope is. So I know some of us, while we're on the topic, we're really scared of what happens in the book of Revelation. I mean, it's scary stuff, right? And some of us maybe are thinking, I'm not sure if I want Jesus to come back because then all the scary stuff happens. Maybe we could just hold off on that for a while. Um, I'd like to, you know, maybe one, one night fall asleep and just wake up in the arms of Jesus the next day and not have to go through all that. But for those who have the kind of fear that's the good kind of fear of the Lord, you know, like those 24 elders that were singing, they welcome the inbreaking 
of the kingdom of God because they know while it will be hard and while it will be ugly in some ways, all of the beautiful stuff comes from it. Because church, we, we only think that we love this world. We only think this is great. You know, the good things we have here, we only think they're wonderful. We don't even understand what's coming. And that when all of that's done and we get into this bride supper of the Lamb that we read about at the end of the story, we're going to look back at all of this and think, I was holding on to that. I was grasping for that. I was worried about the difficulty because of that. I didn't want that to be destroyed. Because everything that's coming is better than everything that is. And that's why in week two of Advent, we say there's hope. Because this isn't the end of the story. And so today, I actually really like this image of the, the flower growing out of a crack in the sidewalk. Uh, you know, sometimes the breaking in of the kingdom looks small. Sometimes it looks like what happened last night when our family was out to dinner before. We went to go see the Chosen movie in, uh, in South, South Bay. And after dinner, we were walking over to the theater, and there was a man named Sean who uh, was hungry and tired and cold. And um, I don't know why particularly that happened in this moment, but I just saw him. And I said, hey, what do you need? And he asked for money, and I gave him some. And He told a story of how someone had offered him a meal in a restaurant nearby, but he was too ashamed to go in because he didn't want to be kicked out. And he wept. And we sat there together, and we prayed together. And it was just this little flower and a crack in the sidewalk. Because in God's kingdom, when it comes in full, that will not happen. And we prayed with him. Um, the church that we used to go to is right around the corner. And one of the pastors was there, and he prayed with him and told him where he could go to get food, where he could go to get prayer, and where he could go for community, if he wants it. Just a little crack in the sidewalk, right? A little crack. He received the prayer with joy. But... His hope, your hope, my hope, it's all in Jesus. It's all in Jesus because he's the king who's inaugurating this kingdom. And we all want that kingdom, whether we know it or not. All your friends want that kingdom. Everyone in your family wants that kingdom, whether they know it or not. And yet we will resist, resist it tooth and nail. This kingdom will bring destruction, but it also brings a blessing and reward to those who fear him. And I love that part in Revelation 11 also where it talks about the destruction of the nations. But it says, you will remember your servants, the prophets, and those who, I think he said, those who serve you, you will reward them. There is a blessing on the other side for those who fear the Lord. And so this Advent, um, yes, uh, pretty decorations. Yes, Christmas trees and lights. Yes, presents, but also... 
there's, a, there's, there's some hardship and there's some trauma and there's some wrestling because the kingdom of God does not advance peacefully according to scripture. It advances forcefully. The kingdom of God advances forcefully and it will mean the end of a lot of things that we've grown maybe too accustomed to. But it will bring with it blessing, reward, joy, peace, forgiveness, grace for those who fear the Lord. Let's pray. Father, our hearts uh, might have a hard time with this. We may struggle, Lord. Because this isn't exactly the feel-good Christmas message. But it's a necessary part of that Christmas message. It's a necessary part that for, for Jesus to come and be a king, it has to mean that the kings of this world, that the powers of this world are overthrown. So Lord, we pray that you strengthen us, encourage us, Lord, that you give us the kind of faith that Rahab had, that in the midst of impending doom, Lord, that we find, find the strength to put our trust in you in very practical, real ways. That we would find in you, Lord, that there's a way through everything that we're going to face. And Lord, to remember that even right now it's happening. We just don't see it the same way. So God, whether it means going to Roslindale to pray with folks on Friday night, or whether it means having a neighbor over for desserts and coffee to spread a little bit of truth about the Christmas season that they might not hear in the movies and on the commercials and on TV, or whether it's just being kind to a stranger, seeing that little flower grow out of a crack in the sidewalk whatever our step is, whatever our moment is, whatever our opportunity is, to be like Rahab and pursue the blessing of the conquering, not just seeing the difficulty of the conquering. Lord, let us see it and let us act on it in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.